Scotty Braun and Adam Jones running Legends Territory today. As always, thank you to the MLB Players Alumni Association for putting together a stacked guest list every week. And make sure you check out BaseballAlumni.com for more info. Also, the podcast version of this show is available on Apple and Spotify. And now let's bring in the next legend. All right, let me take a deep breath because he's done so much. This man has done it all in baseball and still has aspirations to do even more than that. An all-star, World Series MVP, two-time ALCS MVP, three-time World Series champion with three different teams over 16 seasons, former general manager, former pitching coach, former agent. And I'm probably missing a million things, but eventually I want to bring him in. And one day, hopefully, he'll be part of an ownership group in Nashville, the great Dave Smoke Stewart with us right now on Legends Territory. Smoke, great to see you. How's life? Can't complain, man. Every day is a good day. Wake up big, just do something good, something positive. It's just all good here, man. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for asking. Thank you. And when are you going to be running the Nashville, whatever they're going to be called in Major League Baseball? Uh, bro, we are. We have a name. We're called the Nashville Stars. Um, and um, just, just to give you some background and history on the Stars, the Stars played in Nashville, and you'll you'll recognize that there are a lot of teams that played in the Negro Leagues that were that carried the name Stars. Um, but in this particular case, the Nashville Stars played in the in the Nashville in the 40s and the 50s, and um, they were the Negro League team uh, that played out of that area. And so we um, have adopted that name. Um, and as you'll see right now on my T-shirt, you see Negro Leagues to the Major Leagues. Um, when we accomplish uh, something else that's never done been done in baseball, which is to be the first minority majority black home team in baseball. Um, and don't get that wrong. We also have a, a strong focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, but when that happens, uh, we will be the first black owned 51% owned team, um, as well as the first team in major league history that honors the name of a Negro league team. Stu, always good to talk to you, brother. Um, what's the timeline you think of that? And what's going on in Oakland as they're trying to be, they're trying to leave and create an expansion team in Vegas? Uh, you have deep roots in Vegas, and that's your bloodline right there. Um, you work for them right now. Like, what, what's, oof, it's a lot to <laughs> unmask right there in Oakland. <laughs> Well, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about the Oakland A's and then I'll get back to the Nashville Stars. I mean, you know, what's happened with Oakland um, happens with teams in Major League Baseball, um, but I just don't know that it happens for as long um, as it's it's been going on with Oakland, which is, you know, I won't say that they're tanking the team, but um, this year and last year's teams are the two worst teams that um, the A's have put on a field in a long, long period of time. Um, and and it just they're just not a very competitive major league team uh, in what has been a great major league market. Um, and, and so, you know, they're having issues with uh, getting a stadium. Um, and that's been a 20-year saga. Um, and they've decided to move uh, to Las Vegas. Um, as an Oakland native, a person that's grown up here, played baseball, blocks from the Coliseum, a kid that used to sneak into the Coliseum. And, and as you said, Adam, I've got deep roots in the Oakland area. Um, it's, it's a difficult pill to swallow to see a team that has this much history and the legacy that this organization carries to, to be moving. 
uh, to another city. Um, and I've always felt that, um, and this will be the last major league franchise um, here in the Oakland area. The Raiders were here at one point. You give the San Francisco 49ers, which became the Golden State Warriors. I'm sorry, San Francisco Warriors that became the Golden State Warriors have now moved back to San Francisco. And so when the A's move, um, there will be no more major league franchises here in, in, in the Oakland side of the Bay. And once again, that in itself is, is unimaginable and um, just a sad, sad scenario. Um, but the other side of that coin is when I take it from the sad and, and, and try to return something good from bad, um, when the A's and the Tampa Rays accomplish uh, new facilities to play in, uh, that pushes expansion forward. And um, the A's, are, it, when they move to Las Vegas, will be the first piece of that coin. Um, and and Tampa would be the only team that's remaining um, that will interfere with expansion. And, you know, hopefully uh, Tampa solves their issues before the year's end. Uh, so when that happens, the process would be that the commissioner, who since his first day in office has talked about a two-team expansion, um, he will bring that subject up to the owners, show them why it makes sense to do expansion, Um obviously play, place a vote. We believe that Nashville is probably the number one team, the one number one city for expansion, we believe. Um, we're not sure what the West Coast presence is going to be. Las Vegas was that presence. But, you know, he's also talked about Portland. Recently, Salt Lake City has come into the picture. Um, and so those could be options, maybe Sacramento. Um, I know Austin, Texas was mentioned um, as well as a West Coast presence. But, you know, once Tampa has that done, um, we're thinking conservatively that this could be a three three to five year process. Uh, one year has already passed since we really started seriously talking about expansion. And so we're hoping that we can field our minor league team in 27 and play major league baseball in 28 is what we're hoping. That's incredible. And what would you say is the percentage chance that there will be baseball in Nashville in the 2020s? Um, you know, because I'm not the commissioner and I'm not the owners, I can't really give you a percentage. Um, but, you know, if you're reading the articles and, and you're hearing the, 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 the talk and the whispers, um, I, I think that we have a great chance of baseball being played in Nashville in the 2020s. That's fantastic. And then just one follow-up on the Oakland situation for you. I know you grew up a, a San Francisco fan and then kind of converted when you were in high school to latching on with some great A's teams that you followed and, of course, eventually being a part of that mix yourself. How do you think the city is handling the situation right now, like you mentioned? I mean, you could call it tanking this year especially they haven't put a, a suitable team on the field they upcharge ticket prices after that you know it's been it's been a tough situation hearing from a lot of fans that say they feel neglected at this point and that they're halfway out the door and and meanwhile the ownership group looks like they already have to work on a different site from the one that they were initially planned in Vegas so what what have you thought about I guess the way the 
the ownership group has handled this situation that you can learn about how you know to treat your fan base? Well, you know, this has been, as I said, I'm 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 trying to to really look at it. I'm in the way that I can, and and the only way that I can, and and you know, being an agent, um, I know that to get a deal done, that that both sides have to come to equal ground. Um, I have had dealings with the Oakland uh, City Council, um, and it wasn't very very positive. Um, and so, I mean, I believe that the inexperience of the the city um, understanding what a major league franchise can do in the downtown area of, of, of Oakland, the economics. Um, I think that they failed to see what, what, what the ultimate goal will be and what will happen if you were to put a franchise downtown in the Howard terminal area. Um, you know, we can look at the Washington nationals and, and what's taking place there. You know, the battery in Atlanta right now, um, although it is not in a downtown area, but the economics and how well it's doing in in, in Atlanta. Um, I was a part of the Padres organization in 1998 when we went to the World Series and the vote was taken. And and now there's a, a major league stadium in the downtown area of San Diego and that area is flourishing. So I think that the city of Oakland, the council, city council, I think that they've missed what having a major league franchise can actually do for downtown. Um, but at the same time, um, on the ownership side, I, quite frankly, I'm, I'm not too sure that it's been handled. I'm in the way that it, it should be handled from the A's standpoint. Um, there are a lot of things that, um, that they could have done, probably should have done on the try to make this work. But, you know, I still always go back to the fact that with this organ, with this organization as it stands for the Fisher family, it's been a nine-year process. And some people will say that, well, they wanted to go to Fremont. Oh, they've talked about San Jose and all the different areas. But the bottom line is that I, I believe that the Fisher family has tried to keep the A's in the Bay Area. Um, and they've just not been able to get that done. And I think from frustration from their side, dealing with the city, dealing with the state that probably they haven't handled it in the best possible way that they can. I think that the fans are frustrated with the whole process. You know, we're getting 3,000 to 2,500, 2,000 fans at the stadium, which that shows you their frustration. And it also shows you their anger with ownership. Um, It's just not been a good process. And in this, nobody wins. Um, The team, uh, moving to Vegas, obviously, um, the end result for them is that they will get a new stadium and maybe have success in Vegas. The city loses, and, and the biggest lo- loser in all of this will be the fans and the loyals of, of the A's uh, franchise. Stu, so you mentioned that, uh, I mean, just off topic real quick, I'm going to get to it later, that 98 Padres, when you were the pitching coach there, I was 13 years old. You wore your hat like this, sitting on the bench <laughs> like this. Every other kid that I grew up with and wanted to wear their hat like the dudes at the beach and all that. No, man. I wanted, <laughs> me and my friends, we wanted to wear our hat dark like down like Stu. Uh, it was the best. That was my favorite year, obviously, of, of baseball because that just catapulted me into loving it. But uh, I want to talk about a, a, a bright spot for the Oakland A's on the field, but a down moment. A good friend of yours, Vida Blue, passing. Um, one of the you know, just 
best overall pitchers of all time. Let's give him that. One of the best lefties, but a great human being. People that know him, I got to play with his uh, with his son in the minor leagues back in the day, and like, just what what does Vada mean to you? Well, through Reggie Jackson, um, who I met in 1968 as an 11-year-old, um, <clears throat> I eventually met Vida when he came to the big leagues in 69. Um, and Vida at, at 69, he was 19 years old. You know, my brother uh, is five years older than me. Uh, I'm 66 now. My brother is is uh, 71. And Vida would have been two years older than my brother. And so, I mean, when you grow up with, with an older brother, you do everything with your older brother. You play, you play baseball with him. You play football with him. You play basketball with him. You play baseball in the streets. We used to put paper on the, on the ground as our bases and play baseball in the streets. And so meeting Vida, you know, as a 19-year-old, I could not separate the fact that he was a major league player um, and who happened to be 19. He was just right of blue to me. He was 19 years old. You know, I would have conversations with him and have opportunities to really feel like he was just an older sibling. And um, that was in, in my youth. And as, you know, I've gotten to be an adult and grew into being an adult and being a black pitcher in the major leagues, quite frankly, and there were a lot of things that Vida would be able to share with me and did share with me um, that helped me in my career um, and to help me understand the game and how to play the game. But when you even, Adam, as you said, take Vida off of the baseball field, take the uniform off of him and the great things that he did in the game on the field. You know, Vida was a tremendous human being. He was a guy that never, never had a stranger come in his life. Everybody felt as if they knew, knew Vida all their lives. Um, you know, Vida was a give you the shirt off your back kind of guy. Vida was funny. He was charismatic. Um, he was just an unbelievable human being. Um, you know, Vida was as, as, as I would put it, you, you've got friends out there who practice good judgment and they, or you got friends out there that practice good manners. Um, the guys that I want in my life are the, are, are, are the ones that practice good judgment. And Vida always found a way to give me what I needed in a way that I could receive it. But he always had something funny to say when he was giving you that information and giving you that truth that I so much needed. And um, I've always appreciated uh, that friendship with Vida, uh, that relationship with Vida, um, because you're going to find out in your lives, you both know this, that um, you have to have a go-to person, somebody that you know is going to tell you the truth under any circumstance. And that was Vita Blue. You got any uh, cool Vita Blue stories, something funny that uh, nobody's heard yet? Well, that we can hear. That we can hear. Yeah. This one's an easy one because we uh, – because we both went through it, you know, Vida, he was, he was, he was actually coming to a, a function that, that um, my sister was giving, you know, all my people are from Louisiana as well. So my sister was given a function and Vida was coming to that function and he walked into the place and he said, man, I said, what's going on? 
He said, do you know how many people tell me I look like you? And I said, no, I had no idea how many people tell me you look like me. I said, but I'll tell you this. I was just getting off the plane to come here, and the flight attendant on the on the south, I was flying southwest, and the flight attendant says, I know who you are. I know who you are. And I, you know, I started smiling, and you know, my chest was all poked out. And I said, you know who I am, huh? She says, yeah. She says, you know, you get to your seat, and I'm going to come and tell you. I don't want to say it all out with all these people around us. And I said, okay. So I get to my seat. She's bringing me my orange juice, and she says, you're fighter blue. <laughs> I said, what? I said, fighter blue? I said, fighter? I said, fighter is shorter, he's fatter, and he ain't as handsome. <laughs> says that people call him call him me all the time and i'm telling you man people call me him all the time so we laugh about <laughs> that every time we see each other oh i love that i love that all right so then while we're on it another a's great who is a big part of your life so much so that right before we started we had to wait a minute because you were getting a call from your guy, Reggie Jackson. And you're up early, and so is Reggie. I mean, hey, it, yeah. it takes a, a certain kind of friendship to call you at like six in the morning. So from your relationship now, all the way back to just the incredible story of you sneaking into the ballpark and, and how that relationship formed for you at a really young age. Yeah, up at 11 years old, um, as I said, me and my, my cousins, Kevin and Daryl, we used to sneak in the ballpark, and um, we were hiding out in right field, um, which at that time, it hadn't become Reggie's Regiment, but eventually became Reggie's Regiment. And we, we snuck in the ballpark, and we were hiding out and waiting for balls to come into the seats um, and, you know, collecting baseballs pre, pre-game. And Reggie had his back turned to the infield, waiting for us to pop our heads up. <clears throat> And so ball comes up. We finally stand up to get the ball. And Reggie says, hey, old man Finley's going to be not too happy with you guys. And my cousin said, what do you mean? He says, he's going he gonna to put you guys out of here. And my cousin said, well, shoot, he couldn't keep us from getting in here. So how is he going to put us out? So Reggie said, oh, you, you guys think you're smart, huh? He says, I'm telling you what, old man Finley – He's going to put you guys out. And he said, well, we'll, do, we'll be here. We're going nowhere. We're going to be right here when he gets ready. And that was that for that. And then Rick Mundy later on hit a home run during the course of that game that we, we ended up getting. And um, after the game, we went around back to, uh, to, get, um, to get the ball autographed. So Rick Mundy is really, really, he's second to the last player to come out. And we saw him asking for his autograph, and he looks at his watch and he says, you know, what time is it? And my cousin Daryl says, it's, you know, and he starts looking at, because we're 11 years old, man, we're not wearing a watch. And my cousin Daryl eventually says, he says, do I look like I, I can tell you what time it is? And Rick Mundy says, well, I'm going to tell you, he says, it's 1030. He says, you guys got school in the morning? And we all said, yes. He says, well, I'm not signing 
or you guys go home and get ready for school. And he left. So, you know, we started walking out. Reggie's the last person to come out. And he sees us and and we're walking out. And so when we're walking out, he sees all of us and he says, hey. And we turn around and he says, oh, you those smart ass kids, huh? <laughs> and, <laughs> and and we turn around and he says, man, no, we weren't being smart. We were just telling you, man, that you guys don't have anybody, no police here because we, we didn't know the difference between police and security. So you guys don't have any police to keep just keep us out of here. And he says, that's why we stand here right now. You don't have anybody to keep us out. And Reggie said, well, where you guys live? And told him that, you know, we lived down the street. And, you know, we had brought our bikes, rode our bikes to the 76th station, chained them up, and um, hopped the fence, and we were in the Coliseum. So he says, well, you guys need a ride to where your car is. And I told him, I said, man, uh, we appreciate it. I said, but my mother told us not to take uh, rides from strangers. So, no, we'll walk. So we started walking, and he was slow driving behind us. You know, we got to our bicycles, and he was still slow driving until we got to our house, make sure we got home safe. A few days later, he's passing back down our street again, and we see him, and that started our relationship. Um, eventually, he started leaving us tickets. You know, we would sit with his girlfriend, and, and um, we became we became friends at that time at 11, and, you know, um, we still enjoyed the fact that we could sneak in the ballpark. So we didn't take tickets from him all the time. Um, but, um, you know, that, that, that built our friendship, you know, and eventually I started playing more baseball and got drafted by the Dodgers. Um, and the next time that I would see Reggie actually, so from 17 years old until I was 22, I didn't see Reggie at all, didn't talk to him by phone, anything. And I see him in the World Series in 1981. Um, the Dodgers are playing the Yankees. Reggie is, we lost the first two, we lost the first two games in New York. Reggie uh, was not having a good series. He wasn't having a good series offensively. And defensively, he had made a couple of errors. But when we got to L.A., he was taking early bat in practice, and I could hear him taking bat in practice, critiquing himself. And at that time, I now have a, a son, um, and I'm bringing my son in, and I'm going to get an autograph for my son. And I walked up to him, and I asked if he would sign a baseball for me. He didn't recognize me, and man, he he man, he was getting into me. He was talking about man, I'm standing out here and getting my swings in, getting my work in, and, you know, you're messing with my preparation. I'm I'm trying to get myself right. He says, you play for the other team on the, for the other team on the other side, you want me to give you an autograph? He says, what position do you play? I said, I pitch. He says, that's even worse. You pitch, you're, you're trying to get me out, I'm struggling, and you're messing with my preparation. So, I said, Reggie, slow down, man. I said, man, you don't know me? And he says, no, I don't know you. I stepped back from him a couple of sticks. I said, man, look at me, man. He says, I don't know you. I said, man, David Stewart, Keith. He said, little Stu, 
I said, yeah, man. And he said, oh, man, gave me a big hug and, you know, embraced my son. I told him who my son was, gave me a big hug. And since 1981, um, we have, obviously, we started rebuilding our friendship then. And and you see, he called me at 6, 630 this morning um, <laughs> for what, whatever that reason is. Um, we have been we have been. Uh, close, I, I consider Reggie to be um, one of my siblings, my big brother, um, and and that's our relationship today. Um, I want to ask about, you know, as your time as being a being an adolescent, being a teenager, you got to play with Ricky Henderson, Low, Lloyd Mosby, Gary Pettis, who taught me how to play center field, uh, Tack Wilson, who gave you the nickname Smoke. Like, you got to grow up with some heavy hitters, man, and and you guys all are big and and still big in the game right now. Yeah, I mean, that it goes on, man. I mean, those are just a few of the names. But, you know, Rupert Jones is, was, was from the area, and Rupert was actually like the Pied Piper for us um, when we worked out at Cal Berkeley. You would see Rupert, and then you'd see Glenn Burke. There's other guys out here, Marvin Webb, Cleo Smith. You know, from the other side of the Bay, Rudy Law was on the, on the Palo Alto side. Um, Michael Norris was coming out. You know, Gene Ransom, there, there's a bunch of guys that, that here in the area that played the game. Al Woods, Charlie Beeman, man, I could just keep going on and on and on. All of the guys that had an opportunity to play professional baseball out of this area. Um, and we would all meet at Cal Berkeley. You know, Rupert one winter brought out Willie Wilson. So, and we would get together, man, and we play in semi pro games. We had um, uh, Eddie Jewell was was the guy that would pick us up on, on Saturdays and Sunday mornings, put us in the back of his Fred Sanford truck, and we would all be in the back of the truck, man, headed over to play different different teams around the, the Bay Area. And, you know, and then when it got time for the professionals to go and, and play and get into our spring trainers, we would separate and go into our areas. But, yeah, man, Lloyd Mosby, Pettis, Ricky, um, you know, I started out playing with Ricky early on. Ricky and I started playing um, against each other um, when I was 13. Ricky was no, actually, I was 14. Ricky was 13. Ricky was playing in um, in the North Oakland area for a team called Porterhouse, and I was playing uh, for the Oakland Police. And then, um, you know, Pettis actually played for uh, Mr. Mason, and um, and so we had just a bunch of the guys, man, around that were playing on different teams and competing on each other. And Bushrod Park, which is out uh, just the borderline of Oakland and Berkeley, you know, you would think that, man, we were professionals back in those days because anybody and everybody would be coming out to watch us play against each other on, on Saturdays and Sundays. It was it was a great experience for young kids to understand what it felt like to play under pressure on the weekends because we got great crowds to come out and watch us play. Dave, I want to transition to your front office and agent life. So if you compare and contrast those two positions that you held, which one did you like better? Oh, definitely. There's nothing like playing. Um, being a player in the major leagues, um, I today still have not come come close to the challenge, to the competition, to the camaraderie of, of being a major league player. Um, 
being a general manager was great. Um, it wasn't exactly what I would thought it, what I thought it would be. Um, you know, I had layers above me, um, quite frankly, of people who didn't even know as much as I knew trying to tell me what to do. And um, one of my primary goals and reasons for wanting to be a part of ownership is is so that I don't have anybody who doesn't understand the game, who doesn't understand people, who doesn't understand the clubhouse, um, who doesn't understand players to tell me that this is the right way to go when I know it's wrong. Um, that's why ownership is meaningful to me. Um, but man, to step on a major league field, to put a uniform on, to compete against people that you watched when you were a kid growing up and to compete against the up and com coming players, um, that are going to be superstars in the game. Um, there's, there's no, there's nothing like that. There's, there's, there's nothing like it. You know, I was, I got selected to, um, the all-star game, um, and Bob Gibson called me. Um, and Bob Gibson was one of my heroes. Um, he was my first hero actually, um, when I was a kid and, um, Bob Gibson called me and he says, he said, you made the all-star game. I said, yes. He said, congratulations. I said, thank you. He says, I got one, I got one thing that I'm going to give you. And I, I want you to listen to this closely. And I said, okay. He says, when you get there, <clears throat> he says, you make sure that if that you don't make friends with anybody in that clubhouse. And I said, man, it's an all-star game. He says, I don't care. He says, you know, in my day, you know, you had the, the Tuesday all-star game. You get there on Sunday night, Monday, you have a practice and whatever Tuesday you play Wednesday, you fly back Thursday, you play. And so, uh, Bob says those guys, man, they just your teammates for a day. And he says, the, the, the best weapon you have as a pitcher is that these guys don't get a chance to know you. And if you're in there shaking hands and having conversations and smiling, he says, that's going to give some of everything that you have away. Now, where you had the edge, you lose the edge because they think they know you. And I I took his advice, man. I was in the clubhouse in the All-Star game. The guys were coming over, shake my hand and... I shake their hand and just keep on walking, keep on going. <laughs> Fortunately for me, I had a spot. They had my locker in the corner. So I was, you know, I could see everybody that was coming. And, and as I could see them coming, you know, I get that, that thing that I had. And, and they come over, shake my hand and they say, how are you doing? I said, man, I'm doing great. Keep everything one, one, one answer, you know? And so, Carney Lansford and Steiny made the team that year too, and and they went over there and asked, and they said, "Man, what what is wrong with Stu? Man, is he always like that?" And Carney said, "Man, he don't like nobody." <laughs> and so <laughs> that was that was that was my all star experience. <laughs> Thanks, Bob. <laughs> You're like snarling at people, like don't talk to me. Frenemies that all over the place. Well. So you're touching on so many parts of the game that, that you know about and your your vast experience. And what really resonated with me 
was on the ownership side, you saying you want to be able to be part of, you know, the ultimate decisions and not have to answer to someone that frankly might not know much about baseball. So that has me thinking on the ownership side, do we need more baseball people? Of course. And we touched on this at the beginning of our conversation, much more diversity is needed in that part of baseball. Right. And that's what you're a big part of in making sure that happens. Phase two for that. Do we need more baseball brains and less business only brains in that category where you can talk the game and make sure that really as a whole, we're advancing the game of baseball, not just the business of baseball? Well, if you're watching the game of baseball right now, you're seeing that it's reverting back um, in a lot of areas to what it used to be. Um, You know, there was a time when people said that stealing bases had no place in baseball well, stealing bases is coming back. Um, I pitched a game, and when I was, you know, when in my time, I pitched a, I pitched a, a nine-inning complete game in, in two hours and, and one minute, and I pitched a 12-inning game in two hours and 35 minutes. And so you are seeing the game speeding up. Um, which is what it was back in the day. Um, and so you're seeing areas of the game that are coming back. I think that the game is reverting back. I think that at some point you're going to see um, starters again going, you know, seven, eight innings, complete games I think are going to come back. And all these things have to happen because for pitching, you're going to be killing arms. If your relievers, you're going to kill them if you don't have starters going deeper in the game. The excitement of the game is stealing bases and bunting and hitting and running. And those are the exciting pieces of the game, as well as home runs. I also believe excitement of the game is a nothing-nothing game playing into the ninth inning, and somebody does something to win a baseball game one to nothing. That's exciting. The game has changed because of analytics, and I believe that there is a place for analytics. I believe that analytics um, actually took place even during my period of time. We just didn't call it that. Um, I, I believe that the people who are genuine in this game, who understand the game, the players of the game, um, the great minds of the game, the strategic minds of the game, I believe that there is a place for people like that. Um, you know, there are some organizations that are 70 30 analytics, 60-40 analytics. I don't think that there are any organizations that are 50-50 analytics. Um, I don't believe that there are organizations like that. And I think that there there's a better fit for 50-50 in this game um, than there is for 70-30 in this game. Um, I believe that players that have something to offer the experience of being on that field is, is as I've already explained to you, there's nothing like it. Um, you, you, you can't take those experiences and put it in a laptop and spit it out and come out with, this is how the game should be played. I, I don't believe that that, that is, that is a possibility. And so, um, I think that to answer your question, I, I believe that baseball people should be more involved in the game. Stu, I want to ask, I want to ask, I'm going to give you your flowers, man. Four straight years of 20 or more wins, 250 innings. Like, that doesn't, that's obviously not happening, I don't believe anymore. How your arm feel 
first. And uh, but what made you, what what created that tunnel vision for? Because again, there's a lot of guys who have rookie of the year, three year careers, MVPs, five year careers. He's supposed to be this. He doesn't have the whatever career we had. How did you put back four of just spectacular years, year after year after year? You know, I, I looked at, you know, all my, it's crazy, man. All my heroes, you know, and I, I want to give props to Sandy Koufax, first of all, when I was young and in the minor leagues, um, to, to have an opportunity to work with Sandy and really put me on track. My first two years, I was converted player from catcher to a pitcher. And Sandy, um, the, the the Dodgers kept bringing me to the Instructional League. And fortunately, in the 1960-76 season, um, I was able to work with Sandy Koufax. And Sandy put me on track from two years that I didn't win any baseball games in the minor leagues. Um, Sandy got a hold of me in the 76 Instructional League. And, and he put me on track in my, my season. Um, in the 77 year, I ended up winning 18 games. I was 18-4. and four. And I owe that all to Sandy Koufax and really explaining to me um, what pitching was, how mechanically I should work, telling me about his life when he first came into baseball and how he had problems with his control. Um, all those things were helpful to me. As I got to the big leagues, um, you know, I had an opportunity to, to, to meet some of the heroes. Now, when I was a kid, there was Juan Marinchel, um, there was Drysdale. There was Bob Gibson. Um, those were the guys that I had an opportunity to, to look at. Fergie Jenkins, I had an opportunity to watch those guys. What did those guys have in common? Drysdale, not in this class, but Marinchel, Gibson, Fergie Jenkins were all consecutive 20-game winners. And so once I really started learning what I was doing at the major league level, um, I changed my focus from from just being a major league pitcher and being a part of the team to being the team. And I don't mean that in an egotistical way, but, you know, some people play the game because you just love playing, playing baseball. For a long period of time, the numbers may not have reflected it, but there was a decision that I consciously made that, I'm going to be the game. And all that meant was that when I take the field, I'm going to give people a reason to come out and watch baseball. I want people to come out and and say, on this day, Dave Stewart pitched, and I'm a fan of the game. That's what it means to be the game for me. And so I watched Fergie, I watched Gibby, and I watched Marinchelle, and I said, what do all these guys have in common? what they had in common is that they were all 300 inning pitchers. They pitched 300 innings. They had complete games. That's what they all shared in common, complete games and 300 innings. And so I focused now on pitching innings. And I told Tony LaRusa and he'll, he'll, he'll confirm this. My first year I won 20. I told him I'm going to pitch 300 innings. And he says, you'll never pitch 300 innings for me. And I said, my goal is to pitch 300 innings. And he says, well, what is your thought in pitching 300 innings? What makes you think you can do that, first of all? And why do you want to do it? And I said, games are won in the late innings. They're not won early. You can lose a game early. 
but you can't win a game early. And he says, explain that to me. I said, well, if I give up seven runs in the first inning, it's a pretty good chance I'm going to lose that game. I said, but if we score seven runs early, there's a good chance in nine through nine innings that you can come back and score seven runs. I said, so the best chance for me to win a baseball game is to pitch as deep as I can and to eliminate the bullpen. She said, what do you mean eliminate the bullpen? We got Dennis Eckersley down there. I said, I don't need that. What I need to do is I need to finish games because my best chance to win a game is me. So that's the conversation I'm having. So if you pitch innings, the innings means you're going to complete games. And if you complete games, there's a pretty good chance you won a game. And that's the thing that Gibson, Fergie Jenkins, and Marin Shell, all those guys had in common. And they were consecutive 20-game winners. And in that period of time, I was focused on throwing as many innings as I could, pitching as deep in the games as I could, and completing games. And that's that's what happened. Oh, hell yeah. And you did that. Yeah, you, you sure. showed Tony. You <laughs> by far showed Tony. Hey, I'm going to give you a lot of length. Okay, last minute here. I just wanted to make sure I sneak this in as well, Dave, because I have so much respect for your vast experience across the game. You also served time as a player agent which is just so damn unique to do everything you did and be in a front office and be an agent. So did you like that? And are there any good stories, quick ones, but like say about, you know, being in charge of, of where Matt Kemp is going to play and how he's going to operate guys like that, that you were able to really impact their lives from like a contractual standpoint. I'll tell you what, man, my biggest regret as an agent is I never represented Adam Jones. (laughs) <laughs> did you recruit him he, I, was, you know, I was already settled when he was getting into it he was settled in man and, and yeah. to recruit him no um with adam and i think he he'll 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 vouch for this as much as you love to have a player um with your group of players and i had some good ones um adam and i we always had the angle of friendship and and i believe that today the reason why our relationship is solid as it is is i never did recruiting but i was always there for him if he needed to talk to me about anything um as far as playing the game pitchers how they're setting him whatever it is if he needed me in that in that sense that's the way we kept it and and we've 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 kept the friendship through the years because of that and I'm glad that that I that I approached it that way. But being an agent, man, for me, um, and Matt Kemp would probably be the closest relationship um, that I had with any of my players. Matt Kemp and Junior Spivey are my closest relationships. And and what I enjoyed about that um, was not necessarily negotiating the contract for him, um, but I enjoyed helping him grow. Um, I enjoyed sharing my experiences with Matt and having him understand what was in front of him. And when things were taking place in the game uh, that he uh, was having problems dealing with, um, helping him get through those tough times, helping him to understand how to deal with family in the game, because it's not the fans in the game that in my opinion are, are the real issues for players on a day to day. It's dealing with family um, that are your issues I'm in the game and I was able to help Matt um, in that area, dealing with family and, and how to place and compartmentalize all the different things that have to happen with family 
to keep family happy, to keep you happy and keep you focused in the game. And so for me, the best part of, of being an agent is developing the growth of the players that you represent, that you're not doing this because of money, um, that you're doing it because you're actually raising your child. And all of my players were my kids. And that's what I enjoyed about uh, the representation piece of it. That was Chad Billingsley uh, would, would fall in that category as well. Well, you made a major impact in that category and, and still one one big accomplishment in this game left to go. We're rooting for you with the Nashville situation. We'll keep close tabs on it. So props again to the MLB Players Alumni Association for making this happen with us behind the scenes. Head to baseballalumni.com for much more info on your favorite former players like Dave. Uh, catch new episodes every week on Foul Territory's YouTube channels and wherever you get your pods. And lastly, Smoke, thank you so much for the time here. Great catching up with you. Man, it's good sitting down and talking with you guys. I really appreciate it. Adam, good to see you, you as too. always, man. And, and um, hey, man, this was so much fun for me. Thank you.